Please pray with me. Spirit of the living God, come now and grow our faith. Come and deepen our hope and strengthen our love. And come and water within each of us the desire to be your faithful family forever. Amen. I saw an ad on the internet recently that caught my attention. I don't remember the copy on the ad, but I remember the picture. It depicted a very pregnant woman sitting on the floor next to a boom box with some very expensive looking high-tech headphones that were clamped onto her ballooning belly. It's apparently a thing now, playing music to your baby bump before the child is even born. It seems that there is credible research out there that suggests that during pregnancy, babies in the womb can become familiar with the sound of their mother's voice, and that speaking or singing to or playing music to a developing fetus can help in early brain and language development. Who knew? Which got me to thinking that in addition to the sound of his mother's heartbeat and the gurgling of her stomach and the whooshing of the blood coursing through her veins, Jesus was able to hear the sound of Mary's voice as she sang, especially that Magnificat. It resonated all through her bones and consequently through his. When Jesus was born, it was as if he came into this world already hardwired for songs of redemption. And I would like to imagine that Mary did not just sing this song once, but possibly many times during her pregnancy as she struggled to make sense of what God was asking her to bring into the world. Throughout history, the church has revealed Mary as the mother of God, a model disciple, a pure and obedient servant. Let us not forget, she was also a poor female in a patriarchal society, pregnant out of wedlock, shamed and likely to be abandoned by her fiance, marginalized and powerless. She was one of the anawim. That's an Old Testament term for the poor that literally means those who are bowed down, the God-forsaken ones. But Mary doesn't see it that way. She proclaims with great joy that despite her lowliness, God has looked on her with favor, which is totally antithetical to the prevailing theology of the day, which basically said that if you were wealthy and healthy, you were blessed by God. 
And if you were poor or sickly, you were cursed and rejected by God. But Mary, knowing that she has been freed from her shame by a gracious God, flips the script. And she claims that God not only favors the outcast and the downtrodden, God has decided to enter creation subversively, bringing salvation into the world through the poor and the powerless whom the world despises. The Eastern Church refers to Mary as Theotokos, which means the God-bearer. She is also, though, her son's first theology teacher. Think about that for a second. Jesus first hears the good news of God's mighty acts of salvation, not from the rabbis in the temple or from his cousin John, that fiery itinerant preacher. He hears the news from his own mother, through this astonishing song of liberation, which she sings to her son while he is being knit together in the darkness of her womb and no bigger than a jelly bean. In his 1933 Advent sermon, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the song of Mary the wildest most passionate, most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. Well, no gentle, tender, dreamy-eyed virgin here. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic tones of our traditional Christmas carols. Instead, it is a strong, hard, unyielding song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. This whole passage portrays Mary as a bold prophet for justice. Some might even say that she is the first Christian evangelist, receiving the good news that the angel gave her about was what was going to happen through her, and then taking that message on the road to her cousin, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, in turn, welcomes blesses and celebrates the one on her doorstep, the one whom the world would likely have ostracized. And in response to Elizabeth's blessing, Mary sings of a God who lifts up the lowly and fills the hungry with good things. Strangely and wonderfully, Mary sings of a God who not only will do these marvelous things, but in fact has already done them. She praises a God who has already begun the task of restoring all creation. And as I imagine Mary singing to her son all throughout her pregnancy, I sense that her words and melodies are somehow being woven into her son's heart and soul as he is being knit together in secret. 
like a theme song from a political campaign trail. The words of the Magnificat will shape Jesus' kingdom agenda and will season his preaching and teaching and how he will relate to the world that he has come to transform. He will turn all creation upside down and he can credit his mother, at least in part, for casting that subversive vision for him and setting it to music. Actually though, Mary is not the original composer and lyricist for the Magnificat. Truth be told, she is covering and remixing a song that was first sung by her ancestor Hannah to her unborn son, the prophet Samuel, way back in the days of King David. In his new book, Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, Dr. Richard Hayes speaks of Mary. Mary, he says, sings a harmonious descant to Hannah's song of praise. I like that. Only I do wonder who gets the Grammy for that one. This upside down kingdom that Jesus will usher in is rooted in what liberation theologians call God's preferential option for the poor. Basically, if the good news is going to be truly good, it has to be good news for the poor and the oppressed and those on the margins. And Jesus is going to ring the changes on that theme throughout his ministry. We first hear that message in his inaugural sermon that he preached to the home crowd in Nazareth. Luke 4.18 opens with Jesus quoting the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God to comfort all who mourn. We hear this theme again on Jesus' first teaching tour. Matthew calls it the Sermon on the Mount. Luke locates it on the plain. In Luke 6.20, Jesus opens with some pretty disturbing upside-down blessings and woes. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Not poor in spirit, as Matthew writes in his parallel account. Rather, Luke has Jesus blessing the real lives struggling poor, the ones who look to God for everything. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. And again, Luke gets right to the nitty-gritty with Jesus blessing not those who are hungering for righteousness, as we read in Matthew, but those whose stomachs are empty and growling. And in Matthew 25, as Jesus anticipates his impending passion and death, he describes the criteria by which all the nations will be judged. 
and it hinges on deeds of mercy directed to the poor, the hungry, the lowly, the oppressed. Reverend Fleming Rutledge, noted Episcopal preacher and author, has written, the son who sits upon his glorious throne with all the nations gathered before him is the same one who at the very apex of his cosmic power reveals that the universe turns upon a cup of water given to a little one in his name. Elizabeth herself was six months pregnant with her son John when Mary first visited and sang the Magnificat. And even he seems to have overheard her singing and marinated in her message. In Luke chapter 3, when city folks wandered out into the wilderness to hear John's proclamation, they heard urgent words about repentance and returning to God. And when they questioned him about what exactly they were supposed to do in order to flee the wrath that is to come, perhaps John was remembering a distant melody from his childhood as he broke down the basic protocol for his listeners. Those who have two shirts, give one away. And those with food to eat, share with the one who has none. Well, at the risk of stepping on some toes just two days before Christmas, I want to tell you about a little book by Mike Slaughter entitled, Christmas is Not Your Birthday. Mike Slaughter is the lead pastor at the Ginghamsburg United Methodist Church in Tip City, Ohio. And in December 2004, Mike first challenged the people of his congregation to back off, slow down, and spend less on their families at Christmas, and at the same time to give an equal amount to what they did spend on themselves as an offering to the Sudan Project, which was providing humanitarian relief to desperate families living in war-ravaged Darfur. In trying to help his congregation free themselves from the gift-giving mania that he felt like was really strangling them, Slaughter asked them very directly why do we profess our allegiance to Jesus, but then celebrate his birth every year with an orgy of materialism? Now that question really raised some hackles in his congregation. But Slaughter goes on to say, that Christmas our people brought about a Christmas miracle of more than $300,000 for the people of Darfur. Think about that for a moment. Christmas is not your birthday, 
It's Jesus's birthday, and Jesus does not need another Joseph Banks tie this year. But what can we possibly give to the Lord of the universe on his birthday? Well, fortunately for us, Jesus has his wish list, and it is short and unmistakably clear. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Friends, the basic melody of the good news of Christ's coming is not hard to master. It's not rocket science. If I may riff on a 1992 campaign line from political strategist James Carfield, it's the poor, stupid. Lift up the lowly. Free the enslaved. Give justice to the widow and the orphan and the sojourner. Offer dignity and daily bread. That Jesus, you gotta love him. Sounds just like his mother, doesn't he? Just like his mother. <laughs>